invite you to turn in your copies of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 47. Our text today will be verses 13 through 31. Genesis chapter 14, or 47, excuse me, verses 13 through 31. Here we'll see yet another famine spoken of in the book of Genesis, the third. Here once again the very word of God. Beginning in verse 13. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money to Pharaoh's, into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was so severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's, and as for the people, he moved them into the cities, from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food." for those of your households, and for food as for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the length of Jacob's life was one hundred and forty-seven years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, 
Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and marry me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, your scriptures teach us in the book of Deuteronomy that you prosper the hand of the righteous and that you overthrow the wicked. That you raise up those who are downcast and you humble those who are proud. And Father, as we look at this passage today and consider the fact that in the days of Joseph that the money failed, we think of our own circumstances today. We do ask for wisdom, Lord, as Your people. We ask that Your Son, our Savior, would be our high tower, our strength, our fortress, our deliverer in time of need. We commit our ways to You and trust in Your provisions for us. For whatever You ordain is truly right. And in that we give thanks. Though we may be tested, O Lord, help us never to lose sight of our Savior who has died to raise us from death unto life, abundant life. And let us put our faith in Him. We ask these things in His name, for His sake, and for the advancement of His kingdom. Amen. Well, brethren, as I continue a series on our current circumstances, it occurred to me that it would be important at least to spend one sermon on economics and the economics in which we find ourselves in our current day. Now, it's with some trepidation that I tackle this subject matter. I am no economist. At best, I'm an amateur. Yet, I do like to read about it, and I have learned some things that I need to share with you. But more importantly, the Bible speaks about economics very clearly, very distinctly. And it's too often the case that when we read these verses, we run right over them as if they, they don't impact the way we ought to think economically in our lives. I've devoted my life to the study of the Scripture and the proclamation of the Gospel. And necessarily then, I must proclaim something about economics because the Bible speaks to that. Let me give you an example. Uh, We have Ten Commandments that we've just reiterated. Two weeks ago, I spoke about the latter table of the law and its importance as being a the way we love other men, how we are to treat other men. Uh, we're not to take their lives. We're not to take their spouses. We're not to, to uh, bear false witness against them. Uh, we're not to covet their possessions and so on. We're, God tells us that this is truly loving our neighbor as ourself. And two of those latter Ten Commandments speak directly toward economics. Do they not? Thou shalt not steal, and thou, thou shalt not covet. Those are economic commandments. 
Well, let me unpack that just briefly, and then we'll go into money and and the failure of money in the days of Joseph. God teaches us that we are to respect the possessions of others. These are gifts from God, from His hands to men. James tells us in his epistle, all good gifts and all perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights who is in heaven. And that includes your possessions. And God entrusts you with things to be a steward. He owns everything. The the Scriptures are replete with that statement. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yes, there are more than a thousand hills, and yes, He owns the cattle on all the others as well. But He's using that thousand as a large number to express the vastness of His ownership. He's created all things. He owns it all, including your possessions. But He's given them to you to be a steward of them. To use them for your good and for His glory. That's what He entrusts to you. And He expects you to to use them in that way. He he expects you to use your money that way. Your your homes, your your cars, your your, uh, collections of things. Whether they be baseball cards, as some of you collect baseball cards. Whether they be guns, some of you collect guns. Whether they be... uh, crystal ladies that you might collect or or fancy silverware or whatever the thing might be and for me it's books they're everywhere in my office in my home everywhere Uh, we're to use those for God's glory for our good and God's glory as stewards that's why when we're taught to tithe we're taught to give back something to God right 10% we're to give it back Well, that means we don't own it to begin with, right? If we're giving something back to the owner, he's the owner of the thing. Tithing to us should be an act of stewardship where we say to God, yes, this belongs to you. You've asked for 10% of it back. Thank you, Lord, for 90% of it. You could have asked for all of it, but praise the Lord, the church doesn't tax us over 10%. Parenthetically, the government shouldn't be any greater than that in my opinion. But that's another sermon for another day. Today, though, I want to talk about money. And I do have some trepidation about money. I'm going to define it here in a moment. We're going to talk about uh, some different things that have been used as money, and I want to talk to you specifically about our circumstance and our money as it relates to circumstances in the Bible and how we can learn from the Bible about how our money could be on the verge of failure, and if it is, how we overcome. Well, in the history of mankind, money has taken on many forms. On the Polynesian island of Palau, and I may not be pronouncing this right, Rhea stones, spelled R-A-I, became currency. These were stones of varying sizes, from just a few ounces up to 9,000 pounds looking very much like millstones that we have familiarity with. Their value was partly based on the number of laborers that were killed while transporting them. They became currency. Now, I don't think the 9,000-pound stone was moved very often. So whoever possessed it possessed great wealth. 
Other things were used as currency as well. Salt, for instance, was used as money or currency in the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers were often paid in salt, or the money that they were paid was spent on salt because salt remained valuable where the money often lost its value. Many modern-day sayings come from these salt-for-service transactions. The phrase, being worth one's salt, was said about soldiers who were especially good at what they did. And our English word for salary is derived from the Latin word for salt, salarium. Other odd things have been used for money, including candy, tulip bulbs, peppercorns, beaver pelts, payphone tokens, hemp, beads, and now bitcoins. And of course there are the most common forms of money, coins made of metals, both precious and common metals, as well as promissory notes or warehouse receipts, what we know as paper money. There are two things that all of these forms of money share in common. They have a perceived value, and to one degree or another, they are portable, although the, the ray of stones, you know, push the edge of that. The portability of a 9,000-pound stone, a little tough. But they both have perceived value, and they are portable. In other words, these things are desired by others and can be traded easily for goods and services. That is the essence of money. That is why so many different things can be used as money. There is a third characteristic that they all initially shared. They all shared a common trust by men that they would remain valuable. That I could trade them today and then maybe a year from now I might trade the same things and they would still have the perceived value. Beaver pelts, though, have been replaced by in, inexpensive sy synthetic materials. And paper money has re is replicated either by printing presses or digits on a computer to such a degree that they often become worthless. There are numerous examples of governments inflating currency to such a degree that they collapse their economies. I'll give you two examples. Following the First World War, actually three examples. Following the First World War, Germany began inflating its currency to such a degree that folks would go to the local baker with a wheelbarrow filled with paper marks to buy a single loaf of bread. That was the only way they could carry it, in a wheelbarrow, their paper money. Only sufficient enough to buy a loaf of bread. Similarly, after World War II, it was either Bulgaria or Hungary, and I think it was Hungary, they inflated their currency so much that, uh, that they, they minted a $1 trillion note. A $1 trillion note. And that could buy a loaf of bread. A $1 trillion note. Now lest you think that's the worst example, just within the last two years, the country of Zimbabwe has experienced the highest recorded inflation rate on record. The inflation rate hit a high of 231 million percent. 231 million percent. Now those numbers 
stagger us. We, we can't even get our heads around them. Let me help you then. To give you an idea of what that means, the price of a loaf of bread hit 300 billion Zimbabwe dollars. One loaf of bread, 300 billion dollars. That's what it would cost in your local store. They couldn't print the notes fast enough because the numbers inflated so quickly. The government was forced to print one of the highest valued banknotes in history, yea, maybe even the highest. They issued a $100 trillion note in early January. $100 trillion, by the way, is a one with 14 zeros behind it. And as you can imagine, the economy collapsed and the government was forced to allow commerce to take place with currencies from other nations that were stable. I mention these examples for a couple reasons. The first reason is the statement our president made just a few weeks ago. He stated that our morals must evolve. That's a quotation. Our morals must evolve. Two weeks ago, I preached from John's second epistle, where we learned that loving our neighbor as ourselves means that we are to keep the second table of the law. But if our president is right, those ancient moral commands in the second table of the law, they must, be, they must evolve and be jettisoned for some new kind of morality. I presume that includes the commandments to not steal and not covet. Those must evolve. Unfortunately, our president has not the wisdom to tell us what the new moral terms are. And I, we should probably all say, praise God. I would submit that he is profoundly mistaken. Our morals should not evolve. Not only is there a just and equitable, equitable morality found in the scriptures that should be practiced by men, God has revealed that justice and equity to us and has every expectation that the nations of the earth practice his commandments. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about the coming of Christ. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. And the, the Lord will establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord will perform it. God's government for the world is declared in this book. How it is to be governed with justice and equity, and that includes our money. So this brings me to the second point. In the 21st century, governments have consolidated the control of currency into the hands of just a few worldwide. Those who control money have embraced a system of economics that gives no concern to the sinful nature of men. None whatsoever. Instead, it is based on the perceived august and superior wisdom of man. With no thought of the noetic effects of sin. This economic system assumes that man can manipulate money and currency to accomplish societal goals. Goals that have little, if anything, to do 
with God's priorities. Now let's bring it home. In 2008, our nation was suffering from a collapsing economy. Over the next three years, we learned a new phrase. That phrase was quantitative easing. That's a euphemism, brethren. Three times our government could not pay its obligations to those it was indebted to, and so how did the government fix the problem? They created more money. That's how it was fixed. It doesn't take a degree in economics to understand that. They simply added digits to the money supply. Quantitative easing means the systematic inflation of our currency, otherwise known as the devaluation of the dollar. Instead of tightening its belt and cutting expenditures, the government of our nation continued its lavish expenditures and merely printed more money to pay the bills. So now, when the widow and the orphan goes to the market to purchase the necessities of life, how much does their money buy? Does it buy more or less than it did even a year ago, or ten years ago, or a hundred years ago? If it buys less, why does it buy less? It still says one dollar, doesn't it? Shouldn't it buy the same that it did a hundred years ago? Let me give you an example of that. In 1930, if you walked into a department store, gentlemen, and wanted to buy a suit of clothes, and you handed the clerk a $20 one-ounce gold coin, you could buy a suit, a shirt, a tie, and a pair of shoes, and they would be the finest thing they had on the racks. Today, if you walked into a men's store desiring those things, what do you think you would spend for a top-of-the-line suit, a top-of-the-line shirt and tie, and a top-of-the-line pair of shoes? I venture to say you, you couldn't walk out of the store for less than 1250 bucks, having spent that much. Why $20 a hundred years ago and $1,250 today? $20 gold piece a hundred years ago? $1,250 pieces of money today? Do you see the difference there? Do you know what gold sells for today? $1,273. One ounce of gold sells for $1,273. The same one ounce of gold would buy the same thing a hundred years ago as it would today. But not your dollars. Why? Because covetous men inflate those dollars for their own purposes. Now I raised the, the thought of the widow and the orphan just a few minutes ago. Why did I do that? Consider these verses from the Scriptures. James 1.27 Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. It, it means that we are to come to the aid of the orphan and the widow in their trouble and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. 
Psalm 68.5, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God loves the fatherless. He is a father to them. He is a defender of the widow. He comes to her aid. And we as his children are to follow after his example. Isaiah chapter 10. I'm going to read several verses from here. Verses uh, 1 through 4. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of judge justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. God says, if you don't come to the aid of the fatherless and the widow, you're going to have to deal with me. That's how he looks upon the poor and the meek. When money is failing, who are those who suffer most? Is it the fatherless and the widow for whom Jehovah is a father and a father uh, is a father and a defender? The devaluation of our currency by covetous and greedy men harm the fatherless and the widow more than most, and it is they who God will rise up to defend. Well, brethren, I hope you're asking the question, what shall the righteous do when the money fails? The people of Israel in the days of Joseph, they sought a deliverer from the famine, as we read in Genesis 47. They fled to Egypt and to their brother Joseph, who was their deliverer. The wisdom he had was profound because it came directly from the revelation of God. God gave him a vision that that famine would come and that they should prepare for it. His wisdom was profound. It came directly from God. And God taught Joseph from his word to be prepared. Store up grain for the days of famine. Give to the people the sustenance they need in the day of calamity. Brethren, we too have a deliverer. We too have a brother who will come to our aid. And when our money fails, as it likely will, absent wholesale repentance in this country, we shall have a deliverer. Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, will rise up and be our strong fortress, our high tower, our deliverer. And his word will direct us in the paths of righteousness. Hear the words from Psalm 18, beginning in verse 1. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. And then later in the same psalm, with the merciful you will show your mercy. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. 
With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble, but you will bring down the haughty. In last week's sermon, I spoke of God orchestrating calamity. We looked at two passages where calamity was used. First in Isaiah 45, 5-7, and then later at Amos 3.6. I'm going to read those passages again. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then Amos 3.6 If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done this? And we have to answer, indeed. Just as in the days of Joseph, God orchestrated the collapse of the economy and the failure of money, that all men would turn to his deliverer. Brethren, God is orchestrating the events of our day, which may indeed include the collapse of our economy, that all men might turn to his deliverer, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. If men will not humble themselves before God, God will do that for them. He will humble them. He will bring them down that His Son might lift them up. For indeed all things work together for good by the mighty sovereign hand of Jehovah God. Should these calamities come to pass by the sovereign hand of God, be assured, brethren, the strong Deliverer will give us the wisdom we need to persevere. We merely have to seek His Scriptures. Remember the writings of James. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of a sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let us pray together.